Good morning, church. So today, if you didn't know, today is Palm Sunday. Um, I'm assuming you've guessed that when you walked in, they had all the giant branches. I remember as a kid, you know, growing up in the Catholic church, we would get these things, and me and my cousin would use them as whips in the back of the neck. Like, so don't do that now. But I mean, I love it. It was funny because we we were talking about as a staff, like, do we do, like, do we have palms this year for Palm Sunday? And I was like, we have to have palms. It's Palm Sunday. And there's something about the tradition of the palms. I don't know. It just brings me back to like this centered focus of, yes, remembering the good old days when me and my cousin smacked each other in the back of the neck. Hey, Antonio, he's online watching now. Um, But also just this idea of who Jesus is. Palm Sunday, if you didn't know, marks the beginning of the last week of Jesus before he goes to the cross. And it's actually in Luke chapter 19. You see this story of Jesus riding in on a donkey, walking into the city of Jerusalem, marking the beginning of what we now call Passion Week where we acknowledge and celebrate and remember that last week of Jesus before he took on the cross. See, for a long time, the Jewish nation was waiting for this promised Savior to come, and Jesus begins to come to the city, and it says that the multitude, right, a bunch of people, the multitude gathered to see him, right? This multitude, this crowd gathered to see him because they believed that he really was the promised Savior, and they believed that Jesus was going to save them and that he was going to bring true joy. Finally, this nation was going to be the top nation. They were going to be the top dogs. So in the midst of all of their excitement, Jesus comes in with his triumphal entry, and they begin to throw their coats and and branches on the ground, and they grab these palms and throw it at the feet that the donkey could walk on, showing that Jesus truly deserved the royal treatment. And the whole while, they would shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they praised Jesus as they walked in, marking the beginning of our salvation. See, the people were waiting on a promised savior. True joy was coming in, riding on a donkey. The past few weeks, as we've been studying James, we've been talking a lot about joy, haven't we? Everyone in the world is looking for joy. That's not a lie. We don't really have to look up statistics. Every single person on earth is looking for joy. It's not a secret or something we're not aware of. The world is constantly looking for joy. And as a church, we've been looking into the letter that James wrote to the early church. And he starts off his letter in chapter 1 saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James starts talking about how trials and issues give us the chance to have faith, and it even tests our faith. We then talk about being doers of the word and acting out our faith. We talk about taming our tongue and the power that words have. We talk about how humility is the foundation of joy and that life is a vapor and it's quick. You guys remember that? that everything goes back to him. And we have to have our true priorities in order and in line with God if we're going to find joy. And then last week, we learned to have true joy where we take God's word and we actually do what it says. That everything, whether we're happy, suffering, or sick, we go to God in prayer for it. This study in James has individually and as a whole church, I think, challenged us to take our faith a little bit more seriously And we saw the beauty of that last week in service. I will be honest, last week was truly, in the six years that I've been at Crossbridge, my favorite service that we've ever had. I loved the fact that here at Crossbridge, yes, last week, we had the elders come forward and people came up for prayer for different kinds of issues, whether it was to confess sin or to pray for healing or to pray that what was going on in their lives. James talked about that in chapter 5, and we responded and did that. 
But I also love that it wasn't just the elders praying. As we were praying over there, and Pastor Jimmy and Elder uh, Jeremy were praying over there, we saw and looked out that other people in the congregation weren't just watching, but you guys were praying for each other, confessing your sins to one another, just like James says, and praying for healing. And let me tell you today that you know people were actually healed. I can't believe that I get to say that. That people asked for healing of things, and they were healed, but it's not, that's not my story. I'll let them share it when they're ready. Each chapter has called us more and more to our faith and truly finding what real joy is. What I love about James is that he's straight to the point. I mean, this guy is bold and direct and sometimes making this book kind of a hard pill to swallow, but it's something that we need sometimes. We just need the truth. And James is really good at just telling you how it is because James doesn't waste time and he doesn't waste words. Remember that today. James doesn't waste time. There's a reason for that. So today we're going to close our series in James. And his approach today is no different than any other week. It's direct and it's to the point and it's the truth we need to hear. So let's pray together as we start. Jesus, we come into this service and right now we're just declaring and saying to you, whatever you want, whatever you will, that's our desire. This morning, Jesus, will you open our hearts and minds to you that we may hear your word, that we may respond. I'm reminded of that thought that uh, if, oh, if you were convicted by a sermon, that means you would change your life. If you listen to it and you're like, oh, that was great, and you do nothing, that's not conviction. That's just a good message. This morning, may it be convicting and may we respond let it not just be a good message. We love you, Jesus. And God's people said, amen. amen. So starting back in chapter five this morning, but we're gonna be starting in verse one. It says, look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. This is truly a book about having true joy. And he sits here and says, hey, you're going to have terrible times ahead of you. Sometimes it feels like James doesn't know what he's talking about, but he does. Because he goes on in verse 2 to say, your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed the innocent people who do not resist you. Starting off on a good note, right? You guys feeling happy and joyful? <laughs> if you're like me, you're already like, game on. This verse has nothing to do with me. James is talking to rich people here, and I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't have gold and I don't have silver, so I would not consider myself rich so I could rest easy. Am I trying to satisfy every desire? Sometimes, but I know I haven't murdered anyone, I don't really think I have any treasure, and I try and eat healthy, so I wouldn't say I'm fat per se, <laughs> but I totally get it. I am telling you, growing up in the town that I did, the places I've worked, I'm totally thinking this passage has nothing to do with me. It's not talking to me, and it's not talking about me. And then I moved here, right, to this area, and I was like, whoa, a lot of you guys have a lot going on when it comes to these houses. I'm like, Psh, 
They are beautiful. So I knew even more so. This has nothing to do with me. I would not be what I consider rich. I never thought that. I remember even me and Sharon were dating. I was like, listen, baby, we're going to be poor. (laughs) She still said yes 10 years later. But I learned that wasn't really true. Because when you look at the big picture of our world, the stats would say, I'm very rich. Statistically, if you make at least $25,000 a year, you are in the wealthiest 5% of the entire world. Some would argue you're actually in the wealthiest 2% of the entire world. Just $25,000 a year, if your house makes that, you are in the wealthiest 5 or 2% of the entire world. If you own a car, if you have a home, if you have hobbies that you pay for, you are well ahead of the entire world. And I know it costs an absurd amount just to live in New Jersey. Me and Wade were talking about early, earlier. It, talks a, it takes a lot to live here. I mean, the property taxes, wow. And we bought our house a couple years ago. I didn't know what property tax was, and now I'm very aware of it. <laughs> but there are no excuses or ways we can logic away the truth that the rich people James is talking about is including us. James is trying to get this point across that money can be dangerous. Now, pay attention to what I said. Money can be dangerous. Don't email Pastor Jimmy and say that I hate money and money is terrible. Money has the potential to be dangerous. It has the potential to make people do terrible things and worse, make us lose our focus on what really matters. But when you look at the way James describes rich people, it's easy to think, well, that can't be us, not here at Crossbridge. We didn't cheat people of their pay. We don't live in luxury per se. Maybe we're a little self-indulgent, but we're not totally self-indulgent. Again, I feel like the verses I get to preach on always start off getting us like in a bad mood. So hopefully we'll get past that because I really don't mean to guilt trip anyone. That is not the point. I don't want you sitting here going like, I am such an evil person. That is not the point of the message and we're not gonna ask for more money in the giving boxes today, okay? We're cool with that deal? This isn't a message asking for more money, right? Because I remember this reality of, figuring out that maybe I'm rich. It hit me and my wife when we were on vacation a couple of years ago. At the time, Jimmy had given me this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. I brought it along because where we were going to this little cabin on a lake, we weren't going to have any phones, and I knew I'd probably get bored. So I thought maybe I'd catch up on some reading. So we get to this little cabin on this tiny lake, and me and my wife would spend a week there. So I started to read this book quietly by myself in the corner, and I kept coming back going, Sharon, listen to this. Sharon, listen to this. She's like, what? Just tell me. So then I was like, okay. And we sat on a boat on the lake, rowing down. She she would row and I would read to her. It was romantic (laughs) as heck. And you know it. I got some points that day. (laughs) Hey, baby. She's listening at home too. Um, But yeah, I started reading this book to her. And we get to this chapter called Simplicity. The author began to talk about Egypt and how Egypt's empire was built on an economic system built on the backs of the oppressed. Right? To have luxury like a pharaoh, you would need cheap labor. So pharaoh needed slaves, and those slaves, they don't get a day off. They worked every day until they died. And then the author begins to compare Egypt to modern-day America. And he writes something that would haunt me even now. He says this on page 166 of his book. He says, Pharaoh would have loved the U.S. of A. He then goes on to write this. Just like Egypt... We're an empire built on the oppression of the poor. In America's case, and many other nations, literally. What's more, we found a way to do slavery guilt-free. 
We like to think that slavery ended in 1865, but the reality is we've just moved it overseas. Out of our sight, out of mind. There are 28 million slaves in the world today, more than were ever trafficked in the transcontinental slave trade of the 18th century. The odds are your home or apartment is full of stuff they produced, a t-shirt, a pair of kicks, the clock on the wall, those bananas. Wow. I remember the exact spot of the lake we were when I read that, because me and Sharon were like, how could he compare us to Egypt? But then how could he compare us even to Pharaoh? This was a very serious thought. Think, how does that make you feel when you read that? But does that make it not true? The reason we have so much is because we're getting it from men, women, and children around the world who aren't being paid enough to live, work in inhumane conditions, and most are not even able to imagine the life that we have here. I remember when we went overseas, the, the group of people that went in the summer, they would just ask us about America and the stuff we had because they couldn't fathom that we can just go and do and get these things. But yet we're living in a culture here that constantly tells us we need more stuff to be happy. We need more stuff to be content. We need more stuff if we're going to have true joy, right? The average American sees almost 10,000 ads a day, and that's just on social media alone, right? That's just on the five platforms that we have. This is not counting billboards, posters, and even the mail we still get. We are living in a society that continues to tell us that we need more, and they're beginning to tell us more and more that we are not content. Living in a culture that continues to tell us we need to build up our own kingdoms. Think about all of the stuff that we have. James says, this corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. You know that storage units in America is at a $38 billion industry? One in 10 households in America rent offsite storage, and there are five times more storage facilities in our country than there are Starbucks. For real, there's over seven square feet of storage for every man, woman, and child in America right now. Think about all of the stuff we've acquired, stored, and carried all these years. How much do we really need? How much do we really use? And how much of it was truly just an impulse buy and is sitting in our home collecting dust or in some unit? And then James says that all of this stuff that we've gathered over the years and all this stuff that we have kept is testifying against us. So is he saying it's wrong to have stuff? Is it wrong to own things and gather things? No, I don't think that's what he's trying to say. But what we fail to realize is that all of this stuff has the potential to steal our focus. We get so focused on this stuff because we justify it by calling it chasing after the American dream. Do we know how that stuff was made? Do we think about where it comes from? This is not just you. This is me. This is all of us. Ever since me and my wife read this book, our lives have changed. Seriously, we, we cannot forget it. And are we perfect? By no means, not at all. But now anytime I go to buy a t-shirt off the rack, I can't help but think about the real cost of it. Not just the price tag, but the cost of the people who've made it. And that has influenced how our family purchases things. But again, by no means have we got it down. I remember over the pandemic, you know, I, was, I would run every day and I was running and I was thinking, hey, I really need new shoes. I really need new shoes. But I, I, knew, I knew the real cost of it when I read that book. So as I was running, I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go home. And I'm going to look up the perfect ethical shoe. It's going to be great. 
No one's going to get hurt in the making of it. It's going to be awesome. So I did research for like literal days, and I found the perfect shoe. And I went and I bought the shoe, and I was like, ooh, I feel so good about myself. And then I was like, I don't know, let me Google it. I Googled it, and literally the first link talks about how the company that I bought the shoe from is the most unethical company like in the world. And I was like, dang it! I tried. But I continued to even myself try and justify things. I want to buy this, but then I think about how did that get to here, and I'm going to buy it, I'm going to justify it saying I need it, but do I really need it? And again, I'm not going on a guilt trip here. I'm just talking about the focus that our stuff gives us. By no means have we got it down, but we're still learning, we're still growing, and this has become so important to us. So if you want resources or tips on how to avoid making purchases that harm others, just email me or reach out. I will tell you how we are, we're trying and some tips we've gathered over time. But I want to focus on what James is talking about. James is giving us this strong warning to be careful not to look like the world in the things we do and build up our own kingdoms because this is what we're doing, focusing on ourselves and our kingdoms. We get so caught up in our own lives that we begin to forget how life is quick, right? It's that vapor. And we talked about that two weeks ago, didn't we? What really matters at the end of the day? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. The point James is trying to make is our stuff won't save us. Our stuff can't save us. And when he's talking about the day of judgment, right? He says, your stuff is testifying against you on the day of judgment. He's talking about the last days. He's talking about the return of Jesus. And on this day, Jesus will stand as judge and look at all of us. And the people of the early church and the church today, although outwardly we're saying we trust in our creator, our lives sometimes show how we're actually putting more trust and security in our stuff and finances, no matter what the cost. Jesus actually talks about this very same thing in the Gospels. James is actually echoing stuff that Jesus has already said. He says this in Matthew 6:19: "Don't store up your treasures here on earth, where moths eat them, rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rusts cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal." Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. James is echoing the very words of Jesus, telling us that we can put our security and hope in stuff, but it's never going to save us. It's never going to satisfy us. All the stuff that we've gathered here on earth is not 100% guarantee to last. But we fall into a trap thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to be okay in this life, if I'm going to survive, I have to have the right career, and I have to have the right college degree, and I have to have the right certain number in the bank, and I have to have this many rooms in my home, and then I have to make sure that life is enjoyable, so I have to have restful place in my life between the hard work days and career that I can vacation to. And we kind of put God on the back burner. He's in our life, but he's not necessarily the focus of our life. And then we pass this on to our children, don't we? We have to set them up for life, right? So we have to make sure they play all the sports with the best coaches and the best trainers. We have to make sure they get the good grades to get into the college, to get the career, to get the salary, to have the security, to get the rooms. And it goes on and on like a treadmill moving so fast that we could never keep up. Do you know the worst part about all of this? All of it, everything we've gathered can be gone in an instant and never save us. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. If we're so focused on right here, we will miss something crucially important, that true hope and true security and true salvation is not in our stuff, but it's in Jesus Christ, amen? amen. Our hope and security and salvation can only be found in him. 
right? James goes on in chapter five to say this in verse seven, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. James is trying to refocus our focus, and it isn't a coincidence that he's talking about how our stuff, the materials we gather won't save us, yet we gather it up, and then he turns and says, brothers and sisters, be patient. Remember, he is talking to a church that is suffering. We all have moments of suffering, and James keeps continuing to tell us, count it all as joy, and he says, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Our joy If you want true, everlasting, never-ending, nothing-can-go-against-it kind of joy, it's truly found in the hope that our Savior would one day return. We can gather all the money, houses, and cars, degrees, whatever, but our hope is found in only the one that saves, who is Jesus, and our security will always and only be found in his return. This reminds me of a verse that's found in Revelation chapter 6. It's hard imagery, but it's important. So in Revelation, uh, some of you guys know I did a sermon on this a few years ago about the whole entire book, but I want to focus in on just one little portion, and it talks so much about the end times, right? The whole book of Revelation has the no, like everyone's like, oh, it's about the end of life and the end of this world. The end of all of this and the start of something glorious for some and scary for others, right? The apostle John, one of Jesus' followers, sees a vision of Jesus and the things that are going to happen, and he writes it all down for us to read today, but he says this in chapter 6 starting in verse 15. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the general, the wealthy, the powerful, every slave and free person, all hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountain. And they cried to the mountain and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive? Jane, or John is talking about how at the end, Jesus, the living God, who we're going to celebrate, rose from the dead next week. The living God is going to return in everyone, including the rich, the kings, the celebrities. These are the influencers who we follow so much and continue to read all about and get obsessed about. We get so focused on them and their lives and on who slapped who, yet these are the very ones who, if we're not careful, you saw what I did there? If we're not careful... And if they're not careful, could end up in a cave hiding from Jesus. Those who have built their own kingdoms are actually going to hide themselves when they see Jesus return, right? So you're going to have these influencers, these celebrities and powerful, all kinds of people. And it says in James that they're going, when Jesus returns, they're going to hide themselves in a cave and they're just going to beg that the rocks would fall on them and crush them because they know what they've done with their lives and that their focus was on the wrong place and they've put their trust in the wrong things. They put their trust in the world rather than putting their trust in Jesus. So it would be better for the rocks to crush them than to face where they built their kingdom. So rather than be crushed, they face the reality of their eternity. Jesus is clear in his teachings. Trusting in him is the only way to heaven. Trusting in him is the only way to the Father. Come on, most of us know the verse, John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But it's the next verse that's also just as crucial. In verse 17, it says, God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. And here's the kicker in verse 18. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him already has been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. This 
is what the people were afraid of in the caves in Revelation. They put their trust and priorities all in their riches and materials. And James is saying, that's what the world does. If we want the truth of our salvation, it's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And when he returns, it won't be about how much we've saved up. It won't be about how much we've earned. It won't be about our career status or our college degree, but it will be about who he is, what we did with our knowledge of him, and everything he's given us. True joy will never be found in chasing the American dream, but true joy is found in waiting for the return of our Savior. Because when he returns, and this is a promise, when he returns, suffering's over. It's done. That's true joy. But James continues on in chapter 5 to say that we should eagerly be expecting the return of Christ. He says this in verse 7. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Like a farmer waiting for rain, because this is when we know that the harvest is coming. We are to be eagerly, excitedly waiting for the return of Jesus, where he will make all things new, all of the pain all of the suffering he will make new. And he says, he promises he will wipe every tear from our eyes and suffering will be no more, amen? amen? That's something you can put your hope in. That's something you can put your security in. Church, friends, guests, let me tell you the truth. Look around at the world we live in. Don't you already see that we're in the last days? Turn on the news. Have a conversation with almost anyone. The reality is, we're only getting closer to the end. Right? James says, take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. You know how long ago that was written? Every day, we're only closer. So we can argue, are we really in the last days? Well, we're not not in the last days. We're only getting closer. It's been like 2,000 years. For some of us, we should be eagerly waiting like, hey, at any moment now, our God, our Savior can return and say, I'm making all things new. I've prepared a place for you. For some of us, that's going to be the best day in our entire lives and the thing we've been waiting for for so long. And for some people, like our friends in Revelation, it will be the worst, most terrifying day of their lives. I'm only telling you what Scripture says. This isn't my words or my idea. That's what Jesus tells us. James wants us to have our priorities and our focus in the right spot, pointing that our true joy will only be found in the return of Jesus. So then, how are we supposed to live with a focus on Jesus? James goes on to say, don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. For look, the judge, Jesus, is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who've endured under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. Too often we find ourselves grumbling and complaining about the church rather than just being the church. We get critical, we get judgmental, we get frustrated. But do you know what complaining and grumbling does to us? It just shows us that we're very un unempowered. When we find ourselves doing this, complaining and grumbling and being critical of everything, we need to stop and ask ourselves, is my focus on my ideals in kingdom or is my focus on the return of Jesus? 
I want to focus on one thing that he said in there. He said, endure, we give great honor to those who endure under suffering. All throughout scripture, especially in the gospels, Jesus tells us suffering is going to come. It's almost a promise. There will be bad days. He says, endure till the end. Keep your faith. Keep your hope. Endure. It's a beautiful, heavy word. Keep your faith till the end and endure. That was a free one. That's not in my notes. If we were truly focused on the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment, would we be living the way that we do? Would we say the things that we say? Would we act the way that we act? Would we organize our lives this way? So if you knew, hey, I'm telling you, tomorrow's the return of Jesus, what would you do with your life and your faith today? Would it impact your priorities? Would it impact your schedule? Would it impact the way you have your relationship with him and your relationship with others? If you knew that Jesus was going to return and you were excitedly and expectedly waiting for it, how would you live? How would I live? We are going to suffer. We're going to mess up. We're going to get hurt. But James points to this and says, if we want the example of patience, look throughout the Bible of all the people who followed God. They all suffered Everyone who followed God suffered. They all endured suffering. It's the norm of following Jesus. But somehow, somehow in this new day and age, we've created a version of the gospel where you think sharing the story of Jesus is going to be easy and convenient and having our faith and living in the world will lead to like living comfortably and conveniently. But Jesus tells us it's going to be hard. James then points to the story of Job. His whole story was about a man of much wealth and status, and he had the picture-perfect life back then. And in an instant, he lost it all. He loses everything and realizes that in the end, everything he has or he doesn't have, it's all about God. Everything we have and everything we don't have, it's all about God. It's not that God is mean. It's not that God's trying to punish us. But like James said, he's compassionate and merciful and desires for all of us to know him. That's why we gave you invite cards for next week. Because it's got a desire that everyone knows. He's not trying to punish them. He loves them and wants a relationship with them. James was writing to a church, not to unbelievers or to those outside the church, but to the church. Because he knew that we are all tempted to focus on things that fail in comparison to focusing on God. What would it look like if you lived a life focused on the idea that Jesus could return at any moment? That it could be the end of life as we know it. What would we as a church look like if we were so focused on, hey, he could come back at any moment? How would our priorities shift corporately and even individually? If we really focused on the return of Jesus, wouldn't it change everything? Again, I tell you the truth, look around. We're only getting closer and I pray that we won't be caught sleeping. I think the enemy's biggest trick is to get us comfortable and focus on living a convenient life rather than thinking, wait, Jesus could come back. Is this what I want to be focused on when he returns? Is my faith in him or am I secretly putting it in the hands of my finances and the stuff around me? Think about what we even teach our children. Not by just what we say, but how we live. When they look at your life, when they look at my life, when they look at our life, do they see us putting our security and hope and salvation in Jesus and his return? Or do they see us focus on our careers, schoolings, and the homes that we've built for ourselves? Are we teaching them to focus on God or teaching them to focus on what? See, Luke 19, is, it is an interesting story we talked about in the beginning of the message. 
Jesus, riding in on a donkey, comes into Jerusalem to a crowd, chanting his name, praising his name. And they're throwing these palm branches at his feet. And they're so focused on him, seemingly. They're praising him. They're gathered together. And they're like, we love you, Jesus. Blessed is the name of him. Blessed is the son of David. But their focus was wrong. They weren't focused on Jesus and who he was. They were focused on his political stance. And if Jesus was going to make their nation, their kingdom, greater than all the others, while Jesus was more focused on eternity and a kingdom that was coming. Jesus actually says this in Luke 19. In verse 41, he says, But as he came close to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. But now it's too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. The same people in the crowd cheering his name and praising his name and praising Jesus and throwing palm branches at his feet had their priorities all wrong, and at the end of their story, they were the same ones who were praising his name as he rode in on a donkey, and a few days later were the same ones chantifying, crucify him. They were blind. That story always gets me because I always think, what would I have done? They're in the crowd and they see their savior and they're praising him. And then a few days later, they're calling for his death. They lost sight of who he really was. Church, let me tell you today that true joy is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. James and Jesus promised us that we will all suffer for his name. That isn't some of us. It's all of us. But he also promised us one day he was going to return and bring our glory to him. He was going to wipe every tear from our eyes. What are we doing? Where is our focus and priorities? Are we building our kingdom or his? It will take sacrifice, even little things like shopping ethically. Yeah, it costs more and it takes sacrifices. But are you trying to help those in need and not support those who are slaves to an industry meant to trick us into false peace? Having your priorities focused on the return of Jesus will cost you. It will cost me. It will cost us. It will put into perspective what view is important. When you wake up thinking, this could be the day I meet my Savior, it will affect what you do, how you act, and what you view as important. May we be a church that is eagerly awaiting the return of our Savior. Amen? This morning, if you have not put your faith in Jesus, I'm begging you, Come, come talk to us. Come talk to one of the elders. Pray with us, and we'll, and we'll guide you along the way. And if you've been in church this whole time, and you're realizing, hey, my focus has been wrong, we're going to pray together. After service, um, if you need time to pray with the elders or just kind of talk out maybe what you're feeling or thinking, they're going to be in the second cafeteria. We're going to be in there. And we'll just wanna, we just want to pray with you. We just want to, hey, I'm wrestling through this. Let's pray over you. Hey, I'm thinking about this. Let's pray over you. Prayer is a beautiful thing. We saw that last week, didn't we? Our desire is that we all refocus our focus on he who brings true joy. So let me just take a minute to pray for anyone in the room who's feeling something. Um, Holy Spirit, you're a good God and we know that. And sometimes we wrestle, sometimes we struggle, and sometimes we suffer. If there's anyone in the room who does not know you, Jesus, Anyone listening online who does not know you, Jesus, give them the courage to reach out to one of the elders or someone who brought them to church or someone who shared the link with them or even just to talk to anyone here in the service. And if we've been 
in church for a long time and realizing our focus has been wrong, like the church in James that he was talking to. May you refocus our focus. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.